I am Rebecca McCain. I am joined by my co-host, Alan Winson, and this is Bar Crawl Radio. Today, we are at the Catholic Workers' Merry House in New York City's Bowery District on First Street for a conversation about the work being done here to feed the homeless. We usually have these conversations at a neighborhood bar, and now that we have a vaccine, we are confident we will do so again soon. But for today, we are happy to be at the Catholic Workers' Merry House. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go. Several months ago, we made a commitment to talk about those in our community who do not have a permanent place to live or food to eat. And for BCR number 112, we talked with Corrine Lowe of Upper West Side Open Hearts about the homeless men living at the Lucerne Hotel and wanted to get an update. Here's what we learned. So here's the update with what's going on with the Lucerne, which I know is has just become a focal point around this controversy about housing homeless individuals in hotels to protect them from the COVID pandemic. The move was being pushed through by DHS at the behest of the mayor, and it was put on hold based on a legal process that was kind of initially started by residents downtown who didn't want the Lucerne population moved downtown. Then the Lucerne residents successfully petitioned to join that lawsuit themselves to say, we actually want to have a voice in these proceedings, and we want to say that we want to stay up on the Upper West Side. And in fact, it would be detrimental to us to be moved because we would lose the jobs that are being provided by Goddard Riverside. We would lose the stability and sense of connection with the community that we've established. And we would lose the supplemental programming that's being provided by the Upper West Side Open Hearts Initiative and other community groups. So they successfully petitioned to join the lawsuit. And this, this lawsuit went through and it was an Article 78 hearing, which means it was about finding out whether the mayor in using his emergency powers to say he was going to re relocate the Lucerne to the Radisson had a rational basis for doing that or whether it was arbitrary and capricious. The Lucerne residents actually lost um, that hearing by the New York Supreme Court. That decision came down right before Thanksgiving. And so as we headed into the Thanksgiving holiday, we had that very devastating news that we thought the move was imminent. The Lucerne residents decided they were not done fighting. And so they mobilized to create an appeal of that decision, filed an appeal um, shortly after Thanksgiving, and then actually received an emergency stay from the appeals court blocking the move until the case could be heard from the by the appeals court. That emergency stay is still in place. And so as far as we know, you know, Mayor de Blasio is still for whatever reason, salivating to move the men down to the Radisson, but he's not able to do it right now because it's actually right now blocked by the appeals court. These homeless men who are trying to pull their lives together in so many ways have this agency that they are talking up for themselves, and that must feel so good to support them to do that. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly, you kind of hit the nail on the head about the um, the reason for existence of our group, which is that we realized there were powerful forces mobilizing against unhoused individuals. And, you know, typically, historically, there have not been similarly, you know, eager and strong forces in within that same neighborhood, not from outside, not from some sort of, you know, broader perimeter, but within that same neighborhood say, hey, no, we're here, we're your neighbors, and we have your back. And so our goal is to exactly, as you said, help uplift those voices and give unhoused individuals themselves more agency in their own future. Initial decision to let the Lucerne residents intervene in the proceedings, even though they ultimately lost that initial um, court decision, what they won was the right to intervene in the proceedings. And that already was actually precedent setting. Shams is doing great. I think that's one of the, you know, just most beautiful success stories to come out of, um, out of this partnership between a shelter in a community, we've been able to, you know, help him develop his own platform. He's such a powerful speaker and advocate for himself, but, you know, having the backing of your neighbors, you know, never hurts. And he's been able to tell his story in so many different forums um, and be recognized in so many different forums. Upper West Side Open Hearts and Shams the Homeless Hero are actually going to co-host a mayoral forum in the future, so you, your listeners can stay tuned for news of that. This community, which is both 
the permanent residents here and the temporary residents of the hotel homeless shelters has a voice and a seat at the table to be able to speak to mayoral candidates about citywide homelessness policy. On Thanksgiving, for example, you know, we celebrated the holiday with our neighbors by bringing meals prepared by Goddard Riverside. Goddard Riverside typically welcomes people into their community kitchen, and they weren't able to do that, of course, this year. So we delivered meals instead and distributed them outdoors. So we had a gift boutique, which was one of the most beautiful events in terms of an outpouring of support just from all corners where we had people donate brand new, um, either re-giftable things that they had been given and they, you know, wasn't to their tastes or things that they just went out and purchased for shelter residents, but brand new gifts have spiritual and emotional and family relationship needs. And you might need to provide a gift for your kids. And we were able to offer thousands of dollars of donated toys. Westside Kids is a toy store on the Upper West Side that was a big supporter of this initiative, donated thousands of dollars of toys, jewelry for their moms and for, you know, the women in their lives. It was a beautiful event. We just did a New Year's brunch, all of this supported by the community. And at the same time, we've continued our programming, which includes, you know, volunteer run AA meetings, it includes these spiritual walk and talks where local faith leaders come and meet residents from, now we're at three shelters. We're doing it at the Lucerne, the Belclair and the Bel Nord. They come and meet residents, take them on a walk outside, you know, discuss the issues that might be plaguing their souls and, you know, need, need airing. The spiritual walk and talks came out of a shelter resident saying, you know what I want to be able to do? I want to be able to go to church. And the pandemic has cut me off from that. And we figured out a way to make that happen. So we hope that, that DHS will leave the men at the Lucerne alone and let us keep building on this beautiful model because there's many more things that can come out of this and it's something that we ex hope to expand to other neighborhoods it's as been well. so wonderful you know to see how people have risen to the occasion both in the community and from the shelters themselves and to see those two powerful groups come together and create something that you know in some ways has never been seen before and so we have to be grateful for those you know small mercies among such difficult times of neighbors coming together to support one another. It's given us an opportunity to be human. Exactly, exactly. Kareen Lowe, thank you very much for giving us this update on Upper West Side Open Hearts, and uh, we'll check in later. Thank you so much. Right on, right on. This Bar Crawl Radio Conversation continues our commitment to learn about the problem of homelessness and poverty in our city. We are now recording in the bedroom where Dorothy Day died in Mary House in the Bowery on First Street. With us are Catholic workers Bud Courtney and Joanne Kennedy. Mary House and St. Joseph House, two blocks uptown, were started by Dorothy Day to serve the poor by feeding whomever shows up with soup and bread. Her work continues today. Um, we, we are enormously interested in in the work uh, that Dorothy Day started. Mm -hmm. And here uh, here we are in Dorothy Day's room, her mm -hmm. bedroom. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. Uh, pretty amazing. Joanne Kennedy is with us and Bud Courtney. And we're going to be talking to both of you about your commitment to the Catholic worker and St. Joseph House and Mary House. And thank you for inviting us into this house to talk about what you do and how you help your neighbors. Tell us about this room. Thanks for coming. Yeah, so um, the Catholic worker moved into this building, which used to be the Third Street Music School. And the Third Street Music School left the building because it was not large enough for their needs. And it was empty for a few years. And um, Dorothy was still alive, of course, at the time. It was the early 70s. And after the deinstitutionalization of some people who were living with mental health concerns, there was a little uptick in homelessness among women, older women, actually, which they sort of, uh, what we think of now as being sort of derogatory, but they called the women shopping cart ladies because they would, we were homeless and they would walk around with kind of all their possessions in shopping carts. And Dorothy saw that there was a need to respond to this just sudden like bubble of, of women on the street. And so she, there was not enough room at St. Joseph House. And so they started looking for something else. And then they found that this building was available and uh, the monks from the Genesee um, donated the money, basically, for the down payment. And then they moved into this house. It took a couple years to get it ready, and then Dorothy moved in. And so she lived here from 1975-ish until her death in 1980. Um, and so, and the, and the building has been sort of, you know, 
the second half of the heart of the Catholic worker in New York City since then. But we've been at St. Joseph House since 1968. But we've been moving all around this neighborhood um, since before then. So. so we're in Mary House. This is Mary House, yeah. Right. I wonder if we just talk briefly about this room, with the setting of where we're having this talk. Right. There's a, there's a small bedroom. There is a bed that um, doesn't look that comfortable, <laughs> a single bed. A little bigger than a cot. There's some uh, liturgical pictures around. Yeah, so um, after Dorothy died, our friend Frank Donovan, who was Dorothy's right-hand helper, he kept this room and used it for his office, and we didn't totally understand that at the time he was actually keeping all of her things kind of as it was. Uh, he didn't really change anything about the room. Though one thing that we have had to change over time is the bed, although it was always just a twin bed, um, but the bed was uh, not in great shape. Um, and when Frank died and was no longer able to do his work in this room we faced this question of whether we should take out all of Dorothy's things or continue his sort of inadvertent work of preservation and we discovered that the place is very emotional for some people especially people who knew her and visited her when she lived in this room and so we decided to keep it in this condition but it's a little bit of an agony for us because it's a little bit like a museum, and that's not what we do. Um, but I know that many people find inspiration from being in here and thinking about her, and especially looking at all the books that she read. These are all her books. Stanley Vishnuski, who was around and died right around the time she died, um, alphabetized them all by author for her, and they're still in that format. Um, and there's some really astonishing titles um, that she just kept. This is like her pared-down must-have collection of books um, and then over the years people gave us pictures of her and we don't know what to do with them so we bring them up here um, I don't think she had this many images of herself <laughs> in her room <laughs> um, but uh, yeah and these um, there's certain kinds of pieces of art like this one too and that one that um, Forster would make for her he would cut out images from magazines of religious art that one over there which is like a winter scene and he would um, like laminate them and then frame them for her. And I think it's very tender that this reminder of her relationship with Forrester, which while it ended when they were younger, it never fully stopped. Like they continued in a kind of partnership as the parents of Tamar and in affection. And he used to make her these gifts and she would keep them displayed in her room. Were they... Um, was that her husband for some time? Yeah. Yes. She I was never technically married, like, but there's no certificate of marriage, if you will. If you're looking for documents, you won't find that. But they were common law married, um, and, and he is Tamar's father. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking around this room. It is filled with life, mm. I mean, uh, of her life. Um, you say it's a museum piece, but we didn't know we were going to be inter interviewing you two here. And it is kind of awesome. <laughs> Uh, to, to, to be in this room, this humble, kind of messy place where, where she lived. Um, I, I noticed, is that a mezuzah on the door? Yes. Um, she was, of course, not uh, Jewish, but she had a deep, deep respect for um, the practice of Judaism and also, in particular, the, what we call the sort of prophets of the Old Testament. She was actually really good at reading the Bible which is how you know she wasn't raised a Catholic. And so she, she really uh, took Bible study very seriously and really trusted the rabbis to know and understand scripture. And she was given a mezuzah and she kept it up. That's hers, yeah, that's hers. That's, that's totally, totally amazing. You, see, you asked earlier who's gonna be listening to this program mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we're gonna let people know that we recorded in Dorothy Day's room. I'm sure a lot of people are gonna to wanna to Hear, hear the sounds of the room, if, if anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we are mainly here to talk about your work to help the homeless. There's a lot of things we could talk about. Um, and we're talking again to Bud Courtney and Joanne Kennedy, who Bud tells us is the heart of St. Joseph House and Mary House. Kind of keeps Joanne is. Joanne is. Yeah, that's, no. that's right. I disagree. Bud is the heart of all things. <laughs> How many Catholic worker houses of hospitality are there in the United States? And what is a house of hospitality? Great question. Uh, a teeny bit impossible to answer. Yeah. Um, because we're so anarchist, we don't have a like 
super official, um, you know, keeping track of how many houses there are. Um, our good friend Jim Allaire runs an, a website called catholicworker.org where you can look up communities. We say on average there's about 180 communities worldwide. Um, but what constitutes a house of hospitality is up for debate. But the way I like to think about it is that each house is its own like instrument of the Holy Spirit. So each little community is responding to the needs of their community. So maybe you don't need to do short-term like in-house hospitality. Maybe what you do, there's, there's one house that offers places for people to stay when they're visiting their loved ones who are in prison, right? Or there's one house that doesn't even have a place to live. Like the, this Catholic worker didn't used to have a place to live. It just did a soup line. So hospitality is just a place, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a center around which you offer the love and kindness that we are expected to give to other human beings in whatever form your community needs it. So who comes to this house? To the, our houses here in the city? I mean, Bud can answer for St. Joe's. But for Mary House, we decided in the sort of tradition of serving women to keep our lunchtime meal, which is open to anybody, to just women, actually. So while it's open to anybody, it's actually really only open to women. Life for women on the street is particularly challenging. There's a much higher rate of death um, by violence oftentimes, but um, also just it's a much, much uh, more challenging experience. So we offer showers and a clothing room, and we try to give them just a little break from the street. There's also a lot of women who are not actually homeless, but like very poor and living in the neighborhood who come for meals and also for community for the experience of being together and uh, for a place where we'll welcome and be warm, you know, um, which is really hard in the time of COVID. It's a particular challenge to maintain that open welcomeness without actually being able to let people in. Right. And we want, we want to get to um, more detail, exactly the work that you do, the day-to-day -day work. But I wanted to, we wanted to start with like, who are you a bit? So we know who we're talking to. So let's start with Bud. So, uh, Bud, you entered the Carmelite Minors Seminary at 13 years old. You're, I did. You're in your late 60s, early 70s now? No, it's, I'm 71. 71. We're the, I'm, I'm very honest. We're the, we're the, we're, I am too. I'm, <laughs> we're the exact same age. That was a long road of many experiences that led you to what you're doing now. How did you go from studying in the seminary to serving your neighbors here at the Catholic Worker? Were you ordained? I was not. I, I went in at the age of 13 when I was way too young to make that decision. But I was really, at that time, I was really convinced that I was called to, to be a priest. Um, obviously, it didn't work out for, for a number of reasons. Um, but to cut to the chase, I always wanted to help other people. I, I was never sure how to go about doing that. In 1968, I, I heard about the Catonsville Nine draft board burning um, led by the two Berrigan brothers, Philip and Daniel. That flipped me on my, my backside. And you eventually met them. I, I eventually became, I never met Phil. I, I communicated with him, but I became fairly good friends. I was very close to Dan. Um, and inadvertently, the peace group that, that Dan founded, the Kairos community, is ultimately what led me to the Catholic Worker. I was kind of an actor, and I was chosen. I had auditioned for a part in the Catonsville Nine play, and I was cast as Dan. And it was a fundraiser for the Plowshares movement. And Dan was supposed to speak after the play, and I thought that was the reason I got the part. Well turned out Phil was being sentenced in Maine the next day, so Dan wasn't there. But I met this gentleman, Elmer Moss, who was one of the Plowshares Eight. And he really became my mentor and brought me into the peace movement that I had walked away from in the mid-70s when I sort of lost my soul. He brought it back and led me to, to more anti-war work and a direct uh, relationship with the Catholic workers and ultimately to moving into St. Joe's. Right. Along the way, you've um, traveled to Iraq and you've taught there. Yeah. You became activist. You, you've been arrested many dozens of times. Yeah. But that wasn't always, when you first started doing that, you weren't sure you'd be able to get arrested. No, I was terribly afraid. 
for in the six. I was a conscientious objector. I was adamant against the Vietnam War, but I was deathly afraid of going to jail. Um, I, I'm convinced the reason I was given my conscientious objector classification was after 45 minutes of being grilled by by seven members who worked for the Selective Service. They and I had. My, my grounds were pure and, and honest and real. They were religious from my upbringing and my seminary background. But the last question they asked me was, if we don't give you the classification you, you want, will, will you go in the military or will you go to Canada? And I said, I won't do either. I'll go to jail. And I was convinced I was going to jail and I was petrified. So I really feel, you know, God was looking out for me. But it took me many, many, I was in my probably late 50s before I was standing at the recruiting center one day on Martin Luther King Day, and I was watching a number of my friends getting arrested. And I was standing on the other side of the barricade, and I was watching Dan Berrigan being walked away, Carmen Trotto, whom you've interviewed, uh, various Catholic workers, and I started crying. And I realized I'd reached a point in my life where I couldn't let other people stand for me. Either I needed to join them or I needed to walk away. And I was, I, I had come to truly love these people and respect them so much, as well as the, the cause of peace and nonviolence, that the next action that we did, which was the imminent beginning of the, the Iraq war, I got arrested for the first time, which has led to 30 arrests. But and I, I've heard in a uh, 30, and I, I've read uh, in a previous interview that actually the moment of getting handcuffed was almost a relief. Yes. Could you talk about that? I, you know, I, I'm standing there that morning. I was very nervous. I didn't, you know, I had been told what to expect up to that moment. No one had said this is what's going to happen once. But, you know, we were walking towards the UN and when we got to the corner of First Avenue, one, uh, there was a woman standing there and saying, if you're risking arrest, go to the right, if not, go to the left. And I kept thinking, go to the right, go to the, don't, don't panic. And so I went and I was nervous, but I was with all these people I knew and loved. And then when they finally came and they put, put your hands behind your back and they put the plastic cuffs on, I realized that I was free that I was completely powerless. It was out of my hands now. You know, before then I could have walked away. They gave us, you know, if you leave now, you won't be arrested. I stayed and it was, I was free in a, in a weird kind of way. But, and then, you know, to be sitting in a paddy wagon with these seven other people that I had so much respect for, I knew I was in good hands. And, I have two questions. Okay. First of all, what was the experience like being in jail? And secondly, why is it important to make that part of the protest? Um, the first part is it was, I'm always nervous, no matter how many times I've, I've done this, and I think I speak for anybody. There's, you know, you, you, you never, I, I always fear the worst. You know, they're going to find something in my file and they're going to hold me, um, which is never the case. Um, but you, you just never know. Are they going to keep us overnight? Are they going to ship us somewhere? Uh, so, so I'm nervous. But I'm with, you know, I'm white. I'm, you know, the, the police always take care of me. I've had two hips and my knee replaced. So when they would pick me up and they would help me get into the paddy wagon, you know, they respected the fact that I was in, in somewhat pain. Um, so when they treat you like that, you know you're okay. You know, if I were black and wearing a hoodie, it would be a completely different situation. Uh, we negotiate often beforehand with the police, so it's almost rudimentary. The second part, I'm not sure it's necessary. It, when, I, when I first started getting arrested, I felt I, for myself, I feel I had this, you haven't earned your stripes unless you get arrested. And I had an arrogance. And then I came to believe, we're not all called to do this. Um, when I first started getting arrested, the Catholic workers were always going to trial. 
taken, you know, I had a job. I had to take time off work to do this, to continue. But I wanted to do it because I wanted to be part of a community. Um, but not everyone can do that. Not everyone had the flexibility with their work that I did. Um, and then so much of what we do, you know, Joanne was talking, we're not doing this for promotion. We're not looking to get our picture in the paper. We're, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do for us. And sometimes being seen is important depending on the cause. Um, sometimes I need to do it for me. You know, no one else needs to know that Bud Courtney got arrested two weeks ago and spent all of three hours in jail. But it brings attention to your causes, I would guess. It, it brings attention. You know, one day I got arrested and the next day I came back and there was a, a young student from Fordham who had been at the demonstration. And I thanked them for coming to the demonstration. It's always good to have young people there. And I said, thanks so much for being there. And he said, thanks for getting arrested. And I said, you know, it's really not a big deal. I'm back here. He's like, yeah, but it forced me to look at myself and question what more can I do? So that's what makes it worthwhile for me. Um, you know, then we get into a situation. The last time I was in this room, Joanne said, and Alan, you repeated it, that there's a lot of emotion in here. The last time I was in this room, I sat at this desk and I was a character witness for Carmen Trotta. Carmen is one of the people that I met that influenced me to move into St. Joe's. And right now he's in Otisville prison serving a year for the Kings Bay Seven Plowshares action down in Kings Bay, Georgia. That's a little more than going to the United States mission and getting arrested for a couple of hours. Yeah. When, when Carmen and Martha and the other five did that, it raised the bar again. Um, I'm not called to do that, but it certainly forced me to look at what I do. And am I doing enough? Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for mentioning Carmen Trotter sure. and Martha and all of the Kings Bay Plasher Seven who um, either have served time, I think, uh, or, or are going to serve time for showing the insanity of our nuclear policy here in this country. Yes. And, and certainly that's, there's a lot needs to be said about that. But uh, anyone listening, look up Kings Bay Plasher 7 and, and um, if you can send them a, a note of congratulations for getting arrested and trying to show us our insanity. Yeah. yeah, a thank you note. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Joanne, how did you come to Yeah, Catholic I grew up work? in LA and um I was in college with a girlfriend who had become exposed to the Catholic worker there and she was like, You would love these hippies and I was like, <laughs> No, I would not And um she dragged me. Literally I had broken my knee and I was on crutches and she's like, Get in my car and she drove me to downtown LA and she was right. I loved them. It was really great. And I hung out and helped out for a couple of years, but I never thought I would live there. And I went to law school for a year and they gave me a bad time about how the world does not need another lawyer, but could use another Catholic worker. And I was like, whatever, I'm not a Catholic worker. And, um, but as a, to make a deal with Jeff Dietrich at the Catholic worker in LA, I said, okay, I'll go to law school. Then I'll come back and live at the house for the summer instead of clerking as a law student. And I came back and lived in the house. It was the first time I actually did the work every day. And I loved it. I really, I, I come from a big family, a large, I have nine brothers and sisters. So not having privacy was not a big adjustment for me. Sharing the bathroom with seven other people was not a huge adjustment for me. Uh, you know, college dorm life was also similar, right? Um, anyway, one day during that summer, we were doing a Bible study and we were reading um, the story of uh, the Gospel of Mark, actually. And there's a f famous story in that um, Gospel about, uh, they call, the story is called The Calling of the Rich Young Man. And uh, the young guy is saying, hey, Jesus, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. What else am I supposed to do? What else am I supposed to do, right? Like Bud was saying. And Jesus said, well, you can give up all your stuff and come with me. And the way that story ends is that the rich young man walks away sad. And we were really like meditating on what's, what's that about? 
And I was like, the, he's sad because he can't do it. Either he can't make the separation from his life or he has obligations and responsibilities that don't make it possible. And I had a moment of clarity where I realized it would never be as easy for me as it was in that moment to give up all my shit and do it. Like I was, I could see clearly that I could drop out of law school and join the Catholic worker, or I could go to law school and be so far off that track that it would be hard to come back. So I dropped out of law school. Wow. And uh, and I went I went back to Kansas City, Missouri, which is where I was going to law school. And I worked a little bit and I visited Catholic workers all in the Midwest. And then I ended up deciding to go to Des Moines. And I was at that Catholic worker for two and a half years. And it was there that I had a moment of being like, what the hell did I do? And I was sort of feeling <laughs> sorry for myself, I think. And then um, this woman who uh, we knew very well, she was a... Um, a hardworking lady, as I like to say. She was some, a woman who was sometimes um, driven to prostitution to support a drug habit. And she came to the house one day and she said, how'd you get this great job? And I was like, what the hell, right? Like, I have a work that I love. I don't really have a boss. I have a place to live that's perfectly stable, basically. Like she showed me in that moment how clearly lucky I was to have found the Catholic worker. Something I loved to do before I was 30. Like I knew God made me to do this work. So the rest is history. I came here to the Catholic worker in New York in 97. And then I've been here ever since. Wow. Wow. So what is the work? <laughs> Comfort the afflicted and f afflict the comfortable. <laughs> That's the work, right? The so you're, you're, you're going to afflict us because we feel pretty comfortable. <laughs> well, only your own comfort will be revealed and we will afflict you to the extent that you need. Yeah. But yeah, it's basically to meet people where they're at. Some people need loving kindness. Sometimes that's a hot cup of coffee. Sometimes that's a moment of conversation, a smile, a meal, socks. And also some people come questioning why the world is the way it is and why is there so much poverty. And it's our job to say because we participate in it, all of us, and we made this in a way, and we are required to deconstruct it. So is the food a way to bring people in for talk? Sometimes, but if you don't want to talk, that's okay yeah. too. Uh, Dorothy Day is known for soup, for soup, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, Peter Morin and all, well, they said they were gonna make soup, and you still do that, yes? Yeah. Yep, we still do 250 cups of soup a day. What kind of soup? Oh, it varies. It's basically a red kidney bean with potatoes, onions, and carrots as a staple. And then it depends on what's in the refrigerator. We have a wonderful volunteer that lives in, at St. Joe's named Jeffrey, who gets up every day at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, spot shines the kitchen, and makes the soup. And it's always wonderful. It depends on which beans are cheapest to yeah. buy, too. Sometimes split peas, sometimes red yeah. beans. Yeah. And bread? Mm-hmm. Any, any, any solid foods that you serve? We are blessed with... Partly we're blessed because of being the New York Catholic worker. We're like the mothership. So people send us money, donations... Um, that other houses, I'm sure, don't get like we do. So people are constantly sending us, you know, I, I get texts constantly from, from people. When, it, when the virus first hit, we sent out a big email asking for help. And people sent money, they sent clothing, they sent emails saying, what do you really need? So we're getting snacks, or we had to, in the beginning, we had to take out our our clothing room became the snack room. All the granola bars and chips and cookies we had to put in there. At St. Joe's, we used to serve a big hot bowl of soup, and it's almost impossible to turn that into a to-go meal. There's not a container for that much soup. You can't come back and get, like, in the house, you could come back and get a second bowl, right? And you can leisurely eat two bowls of soup. So we had to figure out how to pivot. And so sandwiches made sense to us and a cup of soup maybe. Were you going to give somebody two cups of soup? Right. So we were trying to figure out what to do and how to still give people enough food that they could also take it home. Because we would fill containers at the house too. Like you could fill up your bowl and then pour your bowl in your container and take it with you. So when we shifted, we, we asked for food that would be not spoiling in our houses and easy to distribute. 
So COVID changed everything, right? So we also, we buy fruit now, which we never did before. Um, but so it's been interesting. Um, and at Mary House, because the crowd is a little smaller because it's strictly women, we sometimes are able to serve like whatever we had for dinner as leftovers, we can warm back up and serve as a meal. But it's sort of what food we have, that's what we serve. Right. So at Mary House, you serve people here. And at Joseph, you give people... No, we still do it to go at the door. At the door. I mean, both houses have people who live inside the houses, whom we also feed, of course. Um, But in terms of the people who come from outside the house, we still serve at the door at both houses. The people that live in the house, are they they Catholic workers or are they residents? It's a mix, right? So some of people who came to do the work and some people who came because they would otherwise not have a place to stay. I say that everybody came in need. They're just different needs, right? So day to day, what time do you get up to start cooking your making your soup? And what time do you serve? Well, two a.m. He said, right? Jeffrey, uh, gets, Jeffrey up. gets up at two. Our shift starts at St. Joe's at eight o'clock in the morning. We have we have two shifts from eight to two and two in the afternoon till eight at night. So if you're on in the morning, you're responsible for bagging, obviously figuring out what you're going to serve, and getting it done. Um, fortunately, we have a, a good stable of volunteers both in the house and outside the house that come and prepare all this so that at 9.30 we can wheel it out. And Generally, it's, it's a cup of soup, either two slices of buttered bread or a tuna fish sandwich. Uh, Thursday and Friday, it was donated meatballs and pasta, an apple or an orange. Um, we've been blessed the last couple of days with um, pints of milk containers of milk and a granola bar every day it's a little different but so you you put that together and you go outside and hand out and with coffee and water as well do you have a sense that um this is the only meal some people have yes. for the day and you only have monday through friday you don't serve over the weekend right right there are other places that yeah. serve in the neighborhood on the weekend so there are other yeah. food options do you get food from the farm we do uh-huh it's the volume that we use in the houses is very high, right? I mean, we go through 150 pounds maybe of, of carrots and potatoes in a week. Um, and the farm can't keep up with that. So they grow other stuff for us. So Tommy and Trevor grew a lot of collard greens. Uh, they grow garlic. They grow some of the other things that we still use in abundance, but not the same kind of abundance. This so. is Peter Morin Farm. Uh-huh, which and is in a town called Marlboro. It's about an hour and a half north of the city. Who are the people that come and use their food? It's not only the homeless, but it's the poor. Who, who are they? And do you ever get have a relationship with any of them? I mean, do you know them? Yes. Well, and as you said, it's, it's homeless folks. It's people staying in shelters. Um, it's people obviously living on the street. It's people that are living but are out of work right now or struggling to find ways to pay their rent. And by eating our food, it's saving them from having to go somewhere and, and, and spend money on it. You know, one of the questions we often get asked by social workers and whatnot is, do we require any kind of identification or do you register? No, you show up, we give you a meal. And I've seen a, a wide variety of, of folks coming through since the virus hit. Um, children? Not, we, we don't get many children at St. Joe's occasionally, but not much. We, we, we don't get a lot even here at Mary House, but if you're going to find kids, they'll come with their moms to our house. Yeah. Um, and I would say, too, that this neighborhood has a very high density of um, housing programs for people who um, are on fixed incomes. All right. So right. So and there's a fair amount of public housing right, like between um, Jacob Reese, Lillingwald and Baruch, which are the the three different complexes on the East River that stretch basically from Delancey to 14th Street. There's thousands of people who live there. And so we would sometimes get women from there who would come and get clothing for their families and stuff. With COVID, they have slowed down a lot, which I'm really glad because I want them to stay safe and well. But um, so it's, yeah, you see people who are just very poor who come here for that little extra bump to get through. And also community access has quite a few buildings in our neighborhood. Not everybody can cook for themselves, even if they have a kitchen at home. So, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a wide variety. The, and Bud's right that we don't ask 
we don't want people to feel like what how they live or where they live makes a difference of whether they're going to meet us as human beings. So if they wish to share that with us, great. And yeah, do we have relationships with them? I, I know some of these people for 20 years, right? Like, Tell us about one. Mm, Wow. It jumps to your head. You don't have to tell it. No give name. names. Or I'm, I'm afraid, right? Like I, I don't want to share. But like, yeah. So we know we have a, a woman in particular that I'm thinking of who grew up in this neighborhood. She's been to jail quite a few times. She has a very, a very vexing um, substance use disorder and mental health issues. And when she's not well, she sort of ends up back in our neighborhood. And then we love her and do what we can to help her. And and there isn't. Um, a safety net in our society that's sort of sturdy enough to catch everybody. And so what we do is sort of catch the people who fall all the way through sometimes. Um, and I count her as a friend. Like, and I, I will do, you know, like, not just in a, this is a client that I'm helping, like, she means very much to me and to our whole community. When she's not good and I call everybody and say, look out for her, everybody's looking out for her. Um, and and we can't force her to get the help that that you know she might really benefit from. All we can do is love her as best we can until she can do it. Um, and it's complicated, but that's the sort of brokenness of humanity in a way. And Bud, do you have someone in mind? You know, there's so many. Um, you know. There's, yeah, there's one guy in particular, you know, he, he drinks, so his wife threw him out. He's living on the street, he drinks, he gets violent, he goes back, he gets a restraining order from his wife, he gets thrown in jail. Uh, he's got a heart of gold, but he just can't get sober. Um, Does your own experience with a, a background of having... No. ...doesn't help? I, I wish it would, um, but... For me, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I've been sober 29 years. Just, I was blessed when, you know, I really believe, and I'm not overly spiritual, so I, I, but I really believe, and I felt this since day one, that God put me in some kind of a bubble and, and said, I got something planned for you. And I'm still not sure I know what that is, and I don't care anymore, but he's put, so many people in my path that I can't go wrong. You know, I don't have a choice anymore. You know, I can get to the corner. Joanne's going to be there to go like that. And I'm not going to say, no, I want to go the other way. I'm just going to follow her because I've got this trust. And it's happened day after day for that long. So I, and I never lived on the street. I don't know how people on the street, how do you say, stop drinking? You know, when... When, when you're sleeping on a park bench or on a cell, what, what is your day like? I can't, you know, I know for myself, it's better without alcohol. And, and I know that. And I, you know, it, it, life does get better. But all I can, I know you can't get sober until you want to get sober. And I let everyone, you know, they know my story somewhat. I'll listen to them, I'll talk to them, and I'll try to get them help. But I've walked, Jim, who's downstairs working on the newspaper right now, we walked a guy over to the Project Renewal Detox on 3rd Street one night. The guy was back at our house before we were. We stopped to get a cup of coffee, we came back, and he's in front of the house waiting for us. He checked out. You know, you can only talk to them and, and hold it there. You know, the, the carrot's there if you want it. I've offered to take guys to rehab, but until you want it, it doesn't do any good. So how, how do you how do you handle um, because the people you're serving are not necessarily happy, and so they must come in and express their anger with their lives and and put it out on you. Yeah. Sometimes. How do you handle that? Well, there's a, a prayer the missionaries of charity say every morning. It's the Saint Francis prayer rewritten by Mother Teresa, and part of it is where there is sadness. May I bring joy? And I'm a clown. I, I love clowns. I auditioned for Barnum and & Bailey, and I was accepted. I didn't go. That's a whole other story. But I'm not afraid to make a fool of myself. Um, and I stand out there, and I, I joke with guys. Um, I have relationships. You know, these guys have known me for 13 years. I try to do the soup line 
every day unless I can't for some reason. So they see me, I'm visible. Um, and they may not like me, but they respect me. They sort of understand me. And they know that at, at the end of the day, I'm in their, you know, I'm in their corner. Um, and by and large, we know most of them by name. So when a fight breaks out, if you can call someone by name, it, there's a relationship that we have with them. He, if he pauses for just a second, it gives you a chance to slide in. And then you can say, Alan, you know, let's go over and talk about this. It doesn't always work, but we're peacemakers. So we get in the middle of it. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes it's dangerous. Um, but I think, you know, we're called to do this and we don't stand there and weigh if it's the right way or the wrong way. Somehow you just do it. And then when it's over, that's when you shit in your pants and say, oh, my God. Um, but I go ahead. I just I also think it's um, it may be less common than people think. I mean, I think yes. for the most part, the spirit is not there's a spirit of gratitude. People appreciate being treated with respect. And for the most part, when fights happen, it's not usually with us. It's with between two guys who have a beef that may be started before they came to us or occasionally we have to say no to someone and we can get a hard pushback um but why do you have to say no you know maybe they want a shower and we can't do another one today we've you know it's art past the time and they were and that's a very hard thing to say no you know i'm sorry you, you have to be stinky for another day there's not many places people can take showers in the city it's really horrible way to make people live and it's that is a kind of disrespect of humanity and when we are part of that we experience the pain of it and part of what happens is we feel bad about those choices that we have to make sometimes too. And, and it's so undignifying for people to have to live this way. Um, of course they respond in pain. And yeah, I, I view that more as like justice, right? Like it's like it's in their right to be infuriated that they are forced to live this way because as a society, we are not taking care of each other. And that is so that they're not fighting with me. They're not really mad at me. They're mad at the way the world has treated them and, and the circumstances they're in. And I don't take it personal. That's kind of what we practice, I think, too. Is not, this, this anger is not about us. It's anger is about the lack of justice in the world. So. so here you are. We're in a pandemic. How do you keep doing what you do and stay safe and keep the people that come? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that come in and out, right? Yeah. What do you do? We, yeah, we muddle through. <laughs> I like I have a, a, a way of understanding it for ourselves, which is that it's like it's like when you're a driver and you speed. So sometimes we know that we're engaging in behavior that's a little bit risky. Like somebody comes to the door, they're very upset, they're not wearing a mask. I'm not gonna just like shut the door and be like, go away, you don't have a mask on. I have to find a way to talk to them and calm them down and then see if we can get them to put a mask on. And sometimes the answer is no, or they're gonna wear their mask on their chin and say, I have a mask on, right? Like, but this is a person desperately in need of something. Um, and it's not, they're gonna go to the next place and be equally frustrated. Like I have a moment of, of intervention sort of to say, I wanna treat you like a human being. It's not that I think, you know, this idea of people being contagious is super triggering for people who live through AIDS and lots of people who have been homeless and sort of outcast for a long time already experience being treated like a pariah. So we can't add to that. Um, but we do the best we can. And I don't, I don't, I'm knocking wood. I mean, we have actually, we have had friends who have died, but most of them are not people who are part of our direct everyday community, the people that we knew in nursing homes and other situations. So we have been very lucky. I don't want to say that everything we're doing is working. I don't know for sure why we have um been lucky to have not too much infection in the house like i was sick in march and we test my little family i don't live in the building i live a little bit away and my whole little family tested positive for antibodies but when i started feeling sick i stayed away and nobody else here in the house got sick so you know we just do the best we can to be careful and also not not forget our humanity, right? So if somebody's very much afraid of the virus, we encourage them to do like a firm isolation in their room if they want here in the house. And if other people don't 
aren't sure about the veracity of the, the um, virus, we say, that's your opinion, but we ask you to respect other people and wear a mask when you're around, you know? So we're just all the time negotiating the compromises, I'd say. Right. We're sitting here in Darth, Dorothy Day's room. Would she recognize the neighborhood? I doubt it. In fact, I was watching, um, just last night, I watched a movie called The Sunshine Hotel, which is about the uh, one of the old remaining flop houses, which is now gone. The movie was made, I think it, they shot most of it in 1999. And even I could not believe how much is different in, the, in that 22 years. Like Whole Foods and like the, yeah. there's so much has changed. So I don't, there were many, many things that she would not recognize about this neighborhood anymore, for sure. I would, I would argue, though, that the need for a house like this has not changed. Strangely true. I mean, the, the largest men's shelter is still up the block, which is, the, 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 which is now run by a subcontract called Project Renewal. But it was, that's the building that emptied and people went to the Lucerne because it's oh. gigantic. And it was used to be called the Muni, and she wrote about it. It's like still a men's shelter, and it's right next. It's like literally cheek and jowl with a super fancy, like a four hundred dollar room hotel. And this is the sort of irony. I mean, you know, it's always been common in other big cities like Rio and other places where you have very poor people and very rich people just right next to each other. But Manhattan really has become that in so many ways, especially in this neighborhood. Mary House and St. Joseph's house they're both valuable properties yeah i imagine this could be sold and you can make a lot of money uh in theory so we object to the idea of the that kind of profiteering right like mm -hmm. you know we considering what we the catholic worker paid for these properties um what they could be sold for now that feels like usurious like that's not that's speculation on the real estate market so we were uncomfortable with that notion of profit from something that doesn't shouldn't serve to profit us. But having said that, we sometimes talk about going somewhere else. And I don't know where you could move to in the city if you didn't have a couple million dollars, right? And that's, you know, so that it's a terrible problem. In a way, we're sort of stuck in this neighborhood because of that moral quandary. Because it, it, also, if we sold our properties to somebody to get millions of dollars, whoever would move in is not going to be a friend to the poor. And that's our job, right? So it's there's an abandonment problem. And since the neighborhood still has so many people who are, you know, in buildings sometimes, but, you know, poor, it's, we have them to be with there. Too. So you're in a place where there's a need for you. Yeah. yeah. We still have line. We yeah. still have people who come, right? Yeah. So you're feeding and housing the people that need help. You're making a difference to individual people. But you and others at with what? Witness against torture. Also protest and get arrested. And, and Joanne. And Joanne. Joanne's part of what? Okay, okay. Um, uh, but our society and government are broken in so many ways. Is the Catholic worker movement making a long-lasting difference in our country? I'll go first, if you, so you can speculate on your answer. <laughs> so, um, I would say this. That's not the goal of the Catholic worker, right? So I don't know. It may be true that we are having a long-lasting impact. I think that Dorothy Day, who is not the Catholic worker movement, right, she is a an individual who made the Catholic worker, and there's an interest in Dorothy Day, which has created a sort of corollary interest in the Catholic worker, but there's an interest in her that's different, and it has to do with her her canonization, and you know, the Pope talked about her in Congress when he was here, and so she has enjoyed a kind of profile, um, which has had a national impact, like we've seen that. And I, I, while it's not the work of the Catholic worker to promote her canonization, the, the idea that a single mother could become a canonized saint is unbelievable. If that's the worst thing that happens, that's a good thing, and right? Like, I, so, am, am I wrong? Did she have an abortion also? She had an abortion before she... Yeah, that a woman who had previously had an abortion, who then had a child out of the church, who she basically raised in many ways by herself, this is a life of holiness, right on, right? So that that is a kind of... and her life of holiness was centered in the Catholic worker. And so in this way, the Catholic worker has a lasting impact. And also, what does it mean to change one person's life? What does it mean to help a person experience their humanity again after being so degraded? I don't give a crap about national impact. That is something much larger. And that's what we do.
And we do that all over the place. Catholic workers do that all over the place. And lots of good people do that all over the place. Um, and we know that actually that Donald Trump was a terrible racist, but Joe Biden is no friend of the poor. So it's the national political scene is not the place for solutions. That's not how we view the world. We know that it can be worse and it can be better, a little better, but we don't put hope in that. That's not, our hope is not there. Our hope is in each other and people like you and the people who support us and make our work possible. That's what I think anyway. See, I, I'm not stupid. I was the reason why I asked Joanne to do this with me. I don't need to talk. <laughs> um, I, you said the same thing I, I would have said. To me, it's just, it's planting seeds. Um, you know, none, no one I've ever known that's, that's done this work is, is doing it for any real reason other than because there's a need both internally and externally. We want to, you know, when I give someone a bag of food and, and they smile, I feel good. Some guys, they're so grateful. Others, they just take it and they walk on. But that's not the point. Um, we're serving a need. And it doesn't matter. I can't read everyone, you know, just because someone doesn't smile or say thank you doesn't mean they don't appreciate it. And that's not the point. The point is we're giving them something that they deserve. We're giving them food, and it's a Band-Aid, but we're planting seeds. You know, if we go and speak to a, a group of high school students, you know, I, I don't tell them to quit school and come to the Catholic worker. You know, go out and change the world, but find something to, to make your little corner a better place. And that's all I think we want to do, you know. Would we love to change the world? Would we love to start a revolution? Of course. But the revolution starts on 1st and 3rd Street, and it started many years ago, and we're just continuing throwing some coal. Yeah, right. Peter Morin said everybody should have a Christ room. Like, right? Yeah. We'd love to put ourselves out of business, that, yeah. that society would manage to take care of all of its members in a way that was decent and human. That'd be great. I'm on board. In the meantime, we'll be doing this. I, as a Jewish man, uh, appreciate being included in this because there is a mezuzah yeah. on the wall of Dorothy Day's bedroom. We didn't talk uh, today about Bud Courtney's band, The <laughs> Filthy Dirty System, which is a quote from Dorothy Day, I understand. Mm -hmm. Filthy and Rotten System. Filthy Rotten System. Yes, but we've been called everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Some of which we probably And maybe the say. next time we can talk about your band and, and the places <laughs> that you've been and, and, and where you've played. I'd like to go out with a little sound from the Filthy Rotten System band. Uh, maybe you can help us with that. But um, we just want to thank you. Thank you for sharing this with us. We are ending the conversation with music from the Filthy Rotten System band. Um, will you be playing anywhere soon, bud? Uh, yes, I'm sure I will. <laughs> um, January 22nd, I will be playing at the United Nations oh. um, at a protest for nuclear, against nuclear weapons. That's the day the treaty goes into effect. So there's a big demonstration, well, there's a demonstration. We're gonna walk from the Isaiah Wall up to the United States mission. And I'm sure uh, at least some members of the Filthy Rotten System COVID squad <laughs> will be out there performing. Where can we contribute if someone wants to contribute to the Catholic Worker or any one of the houses? So, yeah, you can uh, send us a check or a money order to the Catholic Worker, uh, 36 East 1st Street, New York, New York. Or call either of the houses. Um, and if you want to get the paper, we do publish a newspaper, which is part of how we afflict the comfortable. And it costs a penny a year. A penny a copy, 25 cents for a yearly. Oh, 25 my God. Cents for a year. right. It'll break the bank. Cents. That's right. And that helps with the postage. Right. Um, but we also um, do send subscriptions to people who can't afford it. So let us know. And yeah, feel free to reach out to the houses. This is Bar Crawl Radio. We usually have these conversations at our New York City neighborhood bars, but now we record where we can. And thank you for letting us come and talk to you today. Thank a you. pleasure. Next time yeah. we can go to a bar, that's great. Well, <laughs> we, would, we would love, we're, we're, we're yearning for that day. 